wonder how many pieces of paper I put out. I always wonder. There's like somebody counting, like, oh, that was a five piece of paper sermon. We're going to be here a while. You didn't think that, did you? Last week it was only two, and he went for like 45 minutes. But the end it was five. So we're going to pick up on the theme a little bit from last week. We, we talked last week about the idea of, of being happy or joyful or content. We looked at it from a lot of different ways. And one of the things we said um, was happiness is not so much about what as it is about who. We live in a world that wants to say a lot of things about happiness, and one of the things it says consistently is if you just had this, if you just had this item or this experience or drove this car or whatever the case may be, then you would finally be happy. And that carrot that's always dangled out in front of us, we talked at length last week about the idea that, that really happiness isn't based upon stuff, upon things. In fact, there is no thing that can make you happy. And when we consider our own lives, most of the places and times when we were most happy, it probably had to do more with the who's in our life, living in right relationship with with those that were close to us and ultimately in right relationship with God. We looked at the, the greatest commandment Jesus gave, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, the, the two greatest commandments. And we saw that even in those is this idea that it's more about the who's, it's more about the relationships that we have that can get us happy. Now, there's a saying that I've actually used it, and there's some truth to it, but you may have heard it. Have you ever heard this saying? God doesn't want you happy. He wants you holy. Have you heard that? Now, okay, I don't know if that's good or bad, but nonetheless, there is that idea. And I want to look at that just briefly from two sides. I think on the one hand, that's exactly right. God's priority for your life is that you become more and more like him. His character grows in your life. That's what he wants. The the character of Christ begins to shine out more in you, not just that you have experiences that put a smile on your face over and over and over again. But at the same time, I don't think we should make following Christ and being happy mutually exclusive. There are some people that would say that you can't do that. In fact, they might. Remember that song, If You're Happy and You Know It? Should we sing it together? Oh, good. If you're happy and you know it, what do you do? Clap your hands. Yes, very good. What else do you If you're happy and you know it? And that is good Baptist. If you're happy and you know it, say it. Get something to eat. There we go. That even rhymes. I like it. I like it. Say amen. And then my favorite verse is, if you're happy and you know it, do all three. Amen, right? Good times, right? There are some people, though, that would make you think God's version would be, if you're happy and you know it, repent. Can't have that. And yet, interestingly enough, when Jesus steps onto the scene and begins to teach the people, we have recorded in Matthew chapter 5, probably the biggest and most complete of his sermons that we have. And he starts that sermon in an interesting way. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, you can turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to throw most of the verses up on the wall as well, in case you didn't bring one and want to follow along that way. There are also some tucked under the seat, so you didn't happen to bring it. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. You know why? Because Jesus preached it on a mountain. You guys are good. You should have Sunday school and Bible class and all that good stuff. Jesus preaches this sermon, and he starts... In Matthew chapter 5, um, we'll, we'll just start 
the chapter, verse 1, it says this. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying. So, so that's the, the context. Jesus sees the crowds. He kind of wants to get a place where he can talk, and his disciples came to him. Now, this wasn't just those 12 guys that we call the 12 disciples or apostles. There were others that were close to Jesus, would follow him around, a, a little larger group. And then the crowds, the thousands that would come at times to hear what he had to say. So in this context, he's up on this mountain, and he's going to preach this sermon to them. It's a great thing to do sometimes, just read through it. Imagine what it would be like to sit in Israel and hear Jesus himself preach. That would be amazing. And he starts out in the sermon with this word. Now, I can tell a lot about your background by how you pronounce the first word of the next verse. Some of you will say, blessed, right? That's how I learned it. That's how I grew up. When you, when you look at that verse, it's blessed. That's how most people would say it. But for some reason, church world, how do we say it? Blessed. I don't know why these little words come to you. You can go to the next slide. But he starts out that way. Blessed. It, blessed or blessed. See, I can't even, I'm, I'm just going to tell myself, I'm not going to say it blessed. I'm going to say it blessed. I can't do that. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for, those, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, before we go too much further, what does he mean by blessed? Because we're going to see that in the first word in all of these verses. The word blessed is the Greek word makarios, in case you're wondering, you keeping score at home. I know you all have your Greek New Testaments out and want to compare that. But anyway, what does it mean is probably the bigger thing. It's translated blessed. There are some people that actually translate it happy. But it's not, and as we'll see as we go through this list of things, it's not a happiness that's fleeting. It's not this idea that something happens and it puts a smile on your face and I'm really excited about it and I'm happy for a few minutes. No, this kind of blessed is a more enduring, a more stable, something that you're going to, to kind of be able to hang out in. It's, it's beyond the circumstances of life. It's more than dependent on what you have or what you've experienced or the particulars of that moment in your life. It is a more abiding and deep sense of God's presence, God's protection, God's provision for your life. You are truly blessed, we would say, or blessed, if you prefer. And as we go through this list, we'll see the things that Jesus might lay out for us as the things that make us blessed, or happy, or content, or whichever of those words you'd like to use. He says first, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we have a, a bit of a, I would think, dichotomy on this, a, a tension on this. Some people would say, the poor, financially, are more blessed. They would say that because what they learn in their life is that things don't make them happy. Things can't be counted upon. And in some way, the poor of the world have a sense of dependence on God. Now, there's a whole other strain of Christianity, a whole other way of teaching that says the rich are the really blessed ones. Because that's the sign that you've got God's blessing. You've got God's hand on your life. You know, it's a, kind of a prosperity view of, of following God. Prosperity gospel, it's actually called. That, that if you think right and do right and believe right and pray right or whatever it is, you'll have everything you need. God will give you more than you can possibly contain. And, and so it might go. 
of those things. It says poor, but not in the sense of financially poor. It says poor in spirit. And I think in that phrase, we might see the idea that no matter if you are wealthy or poor, no matter what you have in your bank account, no matter how many resources you have at your disposal, you have learned the secret to life is that you are utterly and completely dependent on God. Every morning when you get up, you get up with that kind of idea. That you get up knowing that your security, that your place in life, that what that day holds for you isn't determined by the number at your, at your checking account, isn't determined by how much is in your retirement account, isn't determined by the view that you can look out from your house, by the kind of car you drive. No, your contentment, your blessedness is only dependent on God himself. In fact, Jesus taught us to pray just a little bit later in this same sermon. And one of the things he says is what? Give us this day our bread for the next six months. Isn't that how it goes? Give us this day our bread to feed our IRA so we'll be comfortable in retirement. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, what is the bread for today? It's the bread for today. What you need. That's, that's the attitude Jesus taught in the way that he said to pray. God, I'm getting up today, and I'm depending on you, and I'm trusting that today you will give me what I need for today. is somehow feeling like your security is dependent on what you can do. Your security is dependent on what you have to bring to the table, your abilities, your drive, your personality, whatever it is, your, your uh, financial needs, your effort and initiative. That's putting it on you. You know what happens when you put it on you, right? Sometimes it works out. There are people that have put it on them for years, and they seem to be doing okay. And there are people that have put it on them for years, and it didn't work out so good. It's not about who's better at it. No, it's about this attitude that is it up to me. And if you want to carry that burden, if you want to wake up every morning and say, give me this day my daily bread because i got to do it. And if I don't do it, no one will. That is a huge load to carry. That may be the secret to being terribly unhappy, to feeling overwhelmed, to feeling like you can't ever stop because it's up to me. I've got to do it. I've got to create. I've got to make. I've got to push. I've got to go. No, the attitude of being poor in spirit is the attitude that says, God, everything that happens today, you're sovereign. I'm trusting you. Whatever I need for today, you're sovereign. I'm trusting you. I want to be that kind of person, recognizing every day I'm dependent on my Heavenly Father. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He goes on in the next verse and adds that. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. You'll notice a few things as we go through this, this list of Beatitudes, as they're called. Sometimes we don't put the two things together 
that Jesus will connect, and this will probably be a place we can say that. Blessed are those who mourn? I'm not so sure. Mourning is not a positive thing, as we most think about it. In fact, we have some pretty sorrowful moments in our life. If you have lost someone that's close to you, and mourning wasn't something that you looked forward to. Mourning was difficult. It was a burden that you carried. But Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, certainly mourning has to do with with death and loss. I can see that. But I think we can also mourn on other ways, too. We can mourn just sometimes the loss of stuff that's happening. Is there evil in this world? Is there injustice in this world? Do bad things happen to good people in this world? Bad things happen to bad people in this world. Bad things happen to everybody in this world. Those are just realities, aren't they? And to to mourn is to be connected to that reality. To not keep those emotions at a distance or at arm's length. To not kind of try to avoid hurt. To not feel those who are hurting. You know, we have some people here on Facebook. Anybody here on Facebook? It's this new computer thing. You can actually get it on your phone, and people like tell you, hey, I just had a hamburger, and it was great. Right. You've heard of this. I don't don't want to leave anybody out yet. Things on Facebook are fascinating to me. I don't have my own account. I kind of filter off these and listen to that sort of thing. The church has a Facebook page. It must mean something. I don't know what. But, but we have this ability to live vicariously on, on Facebook, to live online that way. And, and people like that video. Anyone? I don't have one to show you. So I'm not setting you good. Amen, right? That would be exactly. But, but there's these things like, don't you wish life was just like a cute cat video? Wouldn't that be awesome? It was all cute and cuddles, right? This, this, those bad things. Okay, did you see the one where apparently if you put a cucumber near a cat, a cat goes crazy? You've seen that? always that, but life is not always easy. Life doesn't always bring joy and happiness. Sometimes life brings difficulty. And and we watch the life of Jesus, who was God in the flesh, who was able to speak, and the the storms would be stilled, who took a a few loaves and a few fishes and fed 5,000 people, who could do the miraculous, and yet we see that point in his life he butted up against the reality of mourning. And what did he do? In John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in all the Bible, Jesus wept. And then a few verses later, he rises, he raises the guy from the dead that he was weeping over. But he still, in that moment, entered into the reality that all of us know and face. The reality that we will have those things in our life that cause us to mourn. And he says, you are blessed when you mourn, when you are engaged in 
because that's what causes us to mourn. If we shun those connections, if we isolate and insulate ourselves in our hearts, we'll never mourn. There'll never be anything that will trouble us. And we'll also probably live pretty lonely, isolated, and dare I say, not done to God be the place that when Jesus says, don't be afraid to get into life with others. Don't be afraid to be connected to others, even if it means there will be those moments when you will mourn, because blessed, that's what I told you, blessed are you who mourn, for you will be comforted. He is the God of all comfort. The Holy Spirit is called the comforter, and when he would give us this encouragement, Necessarily contradictory, but maybe a word that we don't like and probably because we don't understand. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, a lot of people equate meek with weak. Maybe it's because they rhyme, maybe it's because in our, our minds it just sort of has that connection, but that is not at heart what this word is about. The best illustration I ever heard apparently is, is this word is used you can meek. saddle on it and off you go into the sunset today. It has some work to do to, to get that horse used to having that piece of metal in its mouth and, and responding to your signals as the rider to the left and to the right to stop and to go and all the things that, that are involved in that. And a horse, I grew up and had a couple of horses by Kenneth Rose, and those are big animals. Those are not, you know, I call me Shetland ponies, those things, but they're, they're, they're strong animals, and if they decide that they don't want to do what you want to do, it can be ugly. In fact, my dad had a, had the bigger of the two horses we had, and one day his horse decided he didn't want my dad on him, and so he ran under an orange tree that was a little lower, just, just high enough he could duck under it, and just low enough that dad couldn't. That was a happy day. My dad might have said some dirty of meeking it is convincing it that there is another who can take the reins, who can take charge and guide it, and it should follow that. And I think that's the same that is here, that, that we understand, though we may have gifts and abilities, though we may have strength in and of ourselves, we are best suited when we meekly assume our place in the hierarchy where God is allowed to direct our life. that he will direct me in his ways. Maybe the, one of the greatest examples of that kind of person is John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a remarkable fellow. He's out preaching. Uh, any, anybody that's eating locusts and wild honey, that's a radical dude right there. You know, he's got very basic clothing and, and kind of, I think he's a, of the Essene community, kind of on the, on the more radical side of, of belief systems. And he's out preaching and baptizing. And word comes to him, there's this other fellow, Jesus. And he's 
gaining traction. In fact, Jesus at one point comes and asks John to baptize him. And this didn't seem so good with him, but ultimately John submitted to that as Jesus said, it's time to fulfill all righteousness. At one point, as John is dealing with this reality and dealing with this, what people, his followers might think is a tension, this, this competing guy. Remember what he says? He says, he must increase and I must decrease. He understood his place, that Jesus indeed was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he had to submit to him and he meekly accepted his position. In John, I think it's three, he says something to the effect of, you have to accept, or you only receive that which comes from heaven. He understood God was ultimately in charge. And that's the picture, I think, that best describes meekness. Not that we're weak and, and, and have no strength in and of ourselves and just let people run all over us. No, we understand our place as God's servant. And he has allowed to direct and steer our life and meet the ones that Jesus says that we are here. He goes on in the next verse and says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. For they will be filled. Maybe another way to put this is blessed are those who are committed to doing the right thing. Now, that sounds nice and churchy, doesn't it? Maybe in some ways we think that. This we can get behind. You would expect a religious leader to tell you to hunger and thirst for righteousness. But as we think about our own lives, there are probably, I would guess, some regrets that we some consequences, and you look back, maybe at that period of time in your life, with a little bit of regret. Yes. And I would bet that for most of those things, if not all of those things, your regret centers around you doing the wrong thing at that period of time. I chose to do this, which I knew wasn't I would have done the other thing. That's at heart what all of our regrets center around. And we talked a little bit last week about that wonderful word, sin. Is it sin? I wonder if the word is sin. No, it's not really a wonderful word. It's a harsh word. It's an ugly word. But it's a, it's a word we need to, to come to grips with. I like how Andy Stanley talks about it. He says, we're not, we, we want to say, oh, I just made a mistake. But you, you have to admit, you're not a mistaker. You're a sinner. Mistaker, it would be great if you just made little mistakes. You wouldn't mind if you do. Little mistakes are what you backspace on your computer and retype. But my life, when I look at it, a little backspace or correction tape wasn't going to fix it. It was a sin. Jesus calls me to these. And sin is always out there, as we said last week, trying to convince us to take this other thing, to substitute something that in the immediate moment looks like, hey, that's what I really want. And favor of taking the greater and the ultimate good. Sin is always asking us to make that choice, to make that substitution. And when we take that bait, what happens is it begins to separate us in our relationships. A lot of us talked about last week was that. Sin substitutes and sin separates. And Jesus says here, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who Go after the good stuff. Who want, well, want to be 
just to avoid you hurting me. Thank you, Sue. You made some kind of connection there. That's common, right? But that's that's what is something here. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst, who really want to do the right thing. Because what we know is that doing the wrong thing doesn't create long-term happiness. Oh, it might create short-term happiness in that moment. something or another, you had a chance and you chose to do the wrong thing, and financially in that moment, bazinga, and got some return. Maybe it's relationally in that moment, there was a temptation to do something wrong in a relationship, and in that moment, it seemed like a really good decision, but over time, we realize what comes after it is wrong. Jesus says, blessed are you when you hunger and thirst after righteousness. Of course, we can regret. I, I bet we have many of us who probably don't think as we get older, you know, I wish I could go back in high school and get it in again. That's how I really wish. I wish I just could go back and get in more of the mix of high school teachers and math teachers and all these other things. But we know by experience when we do the right thing, it pays off. And Jesus says it should be no surprise and thirst for righteousness, that that brings blessing, that brings blessedness and happiness and peace. We will be filled, he says. He goes on in the next verse where he says, blessed, I guess I'm just giving up trying to say blessed. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. What does mercy mean? There's kind of two words in Christianity, mercy and grace, that are talked about a lot. And they're, they're different. A lot of times we Together, but they're a little bit different. Uh, mercy is when, well, well, why do you throw yourself on the mercy of the poor Jesus phrase you might have heard? Okay, that's one reason. Yeah, that's another sermon. <laughs> but the idea there being, I know I deserve this for what I've done, but I'm asking you for mercy. Please don't give me what I deserve. Isn't that kind of what mercy is? I know I deserve something, but don't give it to me. Because I give people what I deserve. You probably do too. Let's say you were driving down the road in our lovely town or whatever we are in Chicago, and because that certain song came in the radio, you were singing along at the top of your lungs and didn't have to look at your speedometer creeped upward to 46 and 38 55 and oh no 65 and a 45 and then the dulcet tones of woo 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 interrupt your revelry and the officer comes to your window and says sir you know how fast you were going and I want to say it doesn't matter if I know how fast I was going because I bet you know how fast I was going Breakfast and lunch. I want 
mercy is nice and merciful and merciful. You know who's great in mercy and love? Well, this is God's mercy and love to you. God is incredibly merciful. What do we deserve because of our sin? To be separated. We deserve the wages of sin is death. To be separated from God forever. And yet, God through Jesus Christ is able to extend mercy. Give us what we don't deserve. Merciful, we are like him in that way. And, and I would I would suggest this as well. What, what's, let's talk about what's the opposite of mercy. Mercy, if you're not merciful, you might be bitter. You might carry a grudge. You might want vengeance or revenge. You might see that person who did something wrong to you and really want something wrong to happen to them. Right? Well, we can use that. You're in traffic, and you're minding your business, you're following the law, and somebody doesn't. Maybe they pass you on the right because you went there and they're early. Maybe in one of those no passing zones on the stretch where the roads are a little wider, there they go. <laughs> have you done this? Like I have here, Lord, please don't make me do this again, Lord. Please. wrong to get there. We have justice and all that sort of thing, yes, but, but this verse says blessed are the merciful, because the reality is, I don't know many people that are bitter that are happy. They're just carrying that with them. And it just does, they can't shake it, no matter what happens, no matter, even the good stuff happens, there's always that. And they can be in that moment as happy as possible, but let that other person walk in the door. verse, I guess. I lost everybody. Oh, well. Jesus goes on and says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Now, if we were to look at our world, what is the thing of purity? What's the, the trending topic? talking about purity, most people are thinking they're talking about water. A lot of mission teams go overseas and try to, to drill wells for people so they can have pure drinking water. That, that's the thing, probably, that purity is closely associated with in our world. It's a shame because it's not closely associated with moral purity. And that's, I would assume, you would agree with me, is what's being mined here. Blessed are those who are pure in Let's look at the second part of that. Look with me. Can you imagine the clarity that would come when you would be able to see God? This, this has got to be huge. In fact, in a Jewish context, there's the principle that no one will see God and live. His holiness is so overwhelming and awesome that 
Jesus would say, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, goes against even some of the ideas that they would have in their mind. But, but he says, that is what is there. Could you imagine, what does it mean to see God? Yes, to, to see the awesomeness of God. But what about being able to clearly see where God is at work in your world? You read lots of human stories, and God talks a lot about that. Thanks for doing that study. To see where God's at work in your own world. Maybe you like to see clearly what God is up to in your world, in your family, in your finances. To have the clarity to know in those difficult relational decisions, those difficult career decisions, to see God to be of this mind so that you would have clarity of what's the right thing to do, what's the right choice to make. Would that be worth something to you? For me, it would be incredibly valuable to know that when I make a decision, it comes out of a clear way of knowing this is what God would want me to do. In fact, one of the number one questions that a lot of people ask is, what's God's will for my life? Pretty big question. And Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. They might even be able to have that kind of clarity. It comes from the purity of heart, the purity of moral direction and perspective. The idea that most of us look at our lives, we might have those moments where we say, how did I allow myself to get caught up in that? How did this ever go that far? And it's probably because we didn't have that clarity. Our, our motives became mixed. The purity that Jesus speaks of here wasn't there. I want to have the clarity, I hope you do too, about those situations to say, this is not this is wrong, this is sin, and so I need to stay away and be able to choose better which direction to go. Because we all face those kind of decisions that you and I are talking about here. Jesus said, out of the purity of heart, out of the pure motives, without thinking about being a pure mind, a pure heart, you can see God and make those decisions that will ultimately be your best. He goes on and says, blessed are the peacemakers. resolution. You know what, what Jesus did between us and God? He was the one who brought us together. Our sin had separated and Jesus steps in and brings reconciliation. And he says, I've committed to you the ministry and the message of reconciliation. As if God is making his appeal through us, be reconciled to God. We, as peacemakers, are trying to enter into that way that God has brought peace between sinful humanity and a holy God. We can be a part of that kind of thing, bringing peace between people and between people and God. We can do that. We are called sons of God because we begin to mirror him. We begin to see his character in us. One last thing he says, this is maybe the hardest of all. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I don't, you probably don't either often think Persecuted equals being blessed. Being persecuted equals being happy. Being persecuted equals things went bad. Someone made the observation, in your life, you will be persecuted. Where's the light going to be? They mistreated me. They're going to mistreat you. And the question we have to deal with is, what do we want to be as true? Do we want to be 
persecuted because of righteousness? Or would we rather be persecuted because of unrighteousness? Because it works both ways. Sometimes you do the right thing, and you're persecuted for it. Sometimes you do the wrong thing, you're persecuted for it. Often we've got God the Messiah involved in that. Remember from a few minutes ago in the New Testament. There will be times when there will be those things that come upon us, and if we are persecuted because of righteousness, from that moment we can be able to face it with a clear conscience. If we're persecuted because of unrighteousness, well, that helps us we face the consequences, because we know that they came because of our own wrong choices and attitudes and behavior. Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So that, that's the list of all these things that Jesus says are blessings that make us blessed or happy or contented. And maybe the, the way to, to wrap it up is to say, what do they have in don't seem like they have a lot in common. They kind of hang out in some different ways, but so what if you looked at it this way? As you think through that list, think through those things and say, these are things that make you blessed, make you happy, or bring contentment in your life. Ultimately, they're outcome. They're not immediate. They're things that attitudes and behaviors that you sow today and down the road will reap just the list. Blessing of the poor in spirit. You get up every day and say, today, God, I've ultimately depended on you. Does that mean everything that day is going to go right? No, you might have some difficulty. You might have some, some struggles. But you're planting the seed of dependence on God that down the line will help. So you can go down that whole list of those verses we've just looked at and see how do one bring about a result. And, and on the other hand, life marked by unhappiness works the same way. If we sow, if we plant these ideas of, of I'm not poor in spirit, I'm not a peacemaker, I'm a troublemaker, I, I, I don't hunger and thirst for righteousness, I want to do the wrong thing, I'm not pure in heart and all the other things, I'm not merciful. Ultimately, as we, we sow those, we plant those attitudes and activities in our life, we're going to reap the crop down the road and it's not going to be says are the benefits that come from doing these things. So, so you know, as we think about what do we have here? Who says, yes, I would like to be persecuted? Okay, good. I, I, I got that. I'm glad for you. Most of us do. We were given by God the capacity for happiness. In fact, one of the things about the, the, the hope of heaven and eternity is that that will be a time of intense joy of where all the stuff in life that we struggle with, that cause uh, weeping, pain, sickness, all those things that are realities today, we don't have those anymore in the eternal kingdom. We are free from those, and all the stuff that's here goes away, but it's possible. God has put in us the capacity to enjoy this life, to enjoy Him, to have relationship, and to live in a way that brings Him happiness. So, for today, as we think about these things, maybe it's a matter of which blank do we need to fill in? Which decision do we need to 
right when you just said it. You say, yes, I want to be the person you call. So which of these resonates with you? You might be the one who you say, okay, God, I'm going to decide that I am a person who is poor in spirit, is vulnerable, who hungers and thirsts for righteousness, who is merciful, and on and on it goes. Which one of those is this one? Because if doing that and planting the seeds is down the line, stood before that crowd and you began to preach. You, you started with these concepts. You, you started with this idea that the Heavenly Father wants to bless me in His creation. And that we can live a life marked by blessings, by contentment, by happiness and joy. Lord, even as we look at those things, some of them maybe are, are tough. Maybe they don't things we want to experience, whether it be mourning or persecution. Lord, ultimately we know that we want to be people who live a life marked by happiness and joy in you. So I pray today that, that you might show each of us in our lives which one of those places, which one of those attitudes we can begin to work on, which one maybe in our lives we have consistently done the opposite of to the point that we're reaping the unhappy and discontentment that it brings. Lord, that you might convict us of that, that we could even today commit to you to do the opposite. Lord, I thank you that you made us with the capacity to be happy. You made us with the capacity to relate to you. And that you, through your Son, someone here today who does not know you, who's never turned from their sin and turned to you in faith, today would be a day where they would make that choice, where they would repent and accept the gift of salvation that you have offered to all. Lord, we come to our time of response. And so, Lord, in these moments, I pray that we might hear your voice speaking. Thank you.